Good morning again, church. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. I, um, I tried frying a turkey for the first time in a decade, and, uh, and last time it was amazing, and this time I ruined the turkey. So, I mean, we ate it. It was edible food, but it was way overcooked. So hopefully you guys had a better turkey and a great Thanksgiving. Um, so if you don't know me, my name is Jason. I'm, I'm actually the youth pastor here. And so if you're visiting, um, I would encourage you to come back for a few extra weeks and kind of feel the rhythm of the church and, and get to hear Pastor Tim, who you just heard do announcements. Uh, he's our regular speaker. But as we get started today, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about camouflage. I remember whenever I was a, a kid and I was first introduced to a chameleon. Man, I thought chameleons were cool. Like, you know what, I, you know what I'm talking about, right? The one, they got weird eyes that like go in two directions and that goofy tail that can hold on to things. And I remember thinking it was so cool that they could change and blend into the background. And, and I thought that because I had watched them on cartoons, right? And then you see one in a pet store and you realize they just turn from like brown to green, like when they're mad or when the temperature changes. And so I was a little disappointed about real chameleons, and then I learned about an octopus. And man, if you have never seen what an octopus can do, they are amazing. They can genuinely blend in to their environment. Like they could be purple and brown, they could have spots, they can have stripes, they can just completely transform how they look so that they just disappear in their environment. Now, also, my, my fascination with camouflage also came from a book, it's a bestseller that I'm sure most of you guys have read, Jurassic Park 2, the book. You guys read that, right? Now, there's this dinosaur in there that was so good at, at camouflage that he could stand in front of a chain link fence and they could flash a flashlight on him and they couldn't see him. And that was cool to me as a, as a kid. I thought, how cool to be able to just Blend in like that. In fact, um, if I had to pick a superhero power, invisibility was always it. And my kids still ask me today, like they're really into Marvel. And so I, I hear about every six months, like, Dad, what would your superpower be? I'm like, invisibility. You have no idea how cool it would be to just go around and not be noticed. And so I actually still to this day really... I love camouflage for some crazy reason. And so even on Instagram, I'm looking at Instagram reels, spending way too much time following this guy who is a, uh, an airsoft sniper. I don't know if you know what airsoft is. It's a, it's a kid's game that's kind of like paintball, except there's no mess, right? So they go around, they shoot each other with these little plastic BBs. But this guy, all his videos are, are through his scope on his gun. And so half of it is, is the work that he's doing in the game. And then half of it is apparently he is so good at camouflage that when people are frustrated that they got shot, they go looking for him in the woods and they can't find him. And so he's still filming, and they're like touching the barrel of his gun. They are so close, but they just can't see him. How cool is that? I was watching one the other day, and it reminded me of when I used to play woods ball, paintball, in Kansas City. And if you know about paintball, there's, there's two types of paintball. There's the kind where you, you, you run around these inflatable things with really bright, colorful guns, and it's really automatic, fast. It's like a sport. And then there's woods ball. And woods ball was more like pretending you were in Vietnam. Like we were running around in the woods and we were trying our best to be camouflaged, right? We're trying our best to blend in. We have to go across the woods, get the other team's flag and get it back. And I remember thinking, I'm, I'm decked out in camouflage. And I remember thinking, the reason I keep getting shot is because my gun is still black. It's standing out too much. 
And so I remember going home with a bunch of leaves from the place that we played, and I went to Lowe's, and I color-matched a bunch of spray paint to those exact leaves. And then I spent hours in my basement taping off little parts of my gun and spray painting this really intricate camouflage on there. And I was sure that the next time that we went out, I was just going to disappear. And then I got shot immediately because <laughs> I wasn't actually good at paintball. I loved the camouflage part. I wasn't good at the game. But you guys understand what camouflage is for, right? A camouflage is to blend in. It's to, to match your environment. And when you think about camouflage in nature, like with the chameleon or especially with the octopus, the, the point in nature is actually survival and protection, right? Good camouflage lets you blend in and then there's no threat. You're not in danger. And see, I think that we may not have the ability to change our skin color to match the seat that we're sitting in. But I do think we're pretty good at blending in. I think that we're pretty good at camouflaging ourselves in life, right? Like, because I know that it is normal to barely be able to pay for my mortgage and my car payment and my boat and my camper and be buried in debt, but everybody else is doing it. I could, I could do that too. My life could look like that, no problem. Right? Or everybody at work kind of slacks off the last 30 minutes of every day, and I don't want them to think that I'm a brown noser or a, a, a goody-goody, right? And so I slack off with them. I can, I can blend in. I cuss a little bit. I tell a dirty joke here and there because everybody else does, right? Do you, do you ever spend half of your day on your phone, and then the moment you start feeling guilty, you're like, yeah, but everybody does it. Isn't it interesting how we have the ability in different situations to become a different person? And just blend. You ever notice that? It doesn't matter if you're at Thanksgiving with your family. It seems like you just know how to fit. And then at work, whole different group of people, you just know how to fit. And you come to church, and you know how to fit. We're really good at camouflaging ourselves. And if we do stand out, we want to stand out in a good way, right? Like, you wouldn't dare wear something that got a lot of attention unless you look good in it. Right? I, I said that last night and I got an amen. It was the most awkward part, the most awkward amen I'd ever heard. But it came, do you guys know, when I say Pastor Pinky, do you guys know who that is? There was, there's this guy who comes to our church. He's got a pink mohawk. He's retired. He's got chains and leather all over him. He's the one who said amen. I was like, you're not going to step out in something that you don't look amazing in. He's like, amen. And he meant it right? But we know that like, if we're going to be noticed, we want to be noticed for something good. We want to be the person with the great idea in the meeting. Then we're going to speak up, right? Why is that? Why is it that we have this need or this ability to just blend in and never be noticed? And if we're going to be noticed, it has to be for the right reasons. Why? Because I think that we have in each of us a fear of rejection. We're afraid that people aren't going to like us, that they're not going to want us around right? We're so afraid of that that we've actually gotten really good at it, at blending in. We, we blend in, we fit, we match. Some of us even want to disappear in a group or in a room or in a setting. And the reason is because we want acceptance. We want to hear or we want to feel in our heart that you belong here. That's what we want to hear. You belong here. And, and listen, I'm the youth pastor, and so 
I'm trying pretty hard to, to hold on to teen culture. And so, it, parents, if you ever need a translator, I think I have figured out most of the teen slang, and I could probably explain it to you. I think I know what they're saying. But I would not dare say it in front of them. Right? You know what I mean? Like, they would roast me if I said something wrong, and I just want to hear, you belong here. I even want the middle schoolers and the high schoolers to accept me. We all know what that feels like, right? Or if you are going to stand out, it's because you want people to be impressed. And at the root of it, it's the same thing. You want them to be impressed so that they will say or so that you will feel you belong here. We want you here. We love having you. I'm so impressed with you, right? And so just like in nature, how camouflage allows the, the creature to survive and protects themselves, I think that we have this ability to just blend in so that we protect ourselves from that fear of rejection. We protect ourselves from what other people might think. We have this deep-seated need to belong and to be accepted. And I think that that is why teenage boys start showering. <laughs> I remember being like in seventh or eighth grade, and I was at my locker in the hallway, but it was not passing period. It was class time. I was the only one in the hallway, and I was crouched down at my locker. And then into the hall where I was came Stephanie. And she was cute. I thought, man, this is a cute girl, right? When she got up to where I was, though, she goes, man, it smells like you in here. Oh, man, that crushes the middle schooler's spirit, right? Like, that hurt. But I didn't miss a shower after that. You know, and as a youth pastor, I can usually tell. I'm like, oh, you met a girl. You smell better. <laughs> like, is that Axe body spray? <laughs> I need to upgrade your taste a little bit, but I'm glad it's not bad, right? See, everybody wants to be liked. Nobody wants to be hated, it's so deep in who we are and, and how we operate that I think it actually really impacts a lot of different areas of our lives. But what happens, we have this fear that we have learned to orient our life around. We've learned to adjust. We fit. We change ourselves just so that we never have to feel rejected. What happens when our faith threatens that fear? What happens when our faith causes us to be hated or might cause somebody to not like us? What do we do then? Because we've spent so much of our life orienting ourselves around wanting to be liked. That's what we're going to talk about today. And we're going to get back into the book of John. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in John chapter 15. And um, if you're new around here, we've been going through the book of John kind of slowly. And a, a few weeks ago, Pastor Tim started us in chapter 15. And if you'll remember, he was talking about where Jesus said that to have a fruitful and productive Christian life, to do this right, you're going to need to stay connected to me in the same way that a branch is connected to a vine. That is where Jesus starts this conversation. We're going to pick it up in verse 18. And I'm going to just read several verses and we'll go back and we'll kind of take them apart. Verse 18, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you don't belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. Remember what I told you? A servant is not greater than his master. 
If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they don't know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, the world would not be guilty of sin, or they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. All right, so this is, if you remember, this is uh, an important moment with Jesus. He's kind of having his last team meeting with his guys. This is the last conversation that he's having with his disciples before he gets arrested and, and dies on a cross. And he's got this really plain statement in here. The world hates you. Think about that for a minute. Jesus is talking to his guys, and he's, he's about to hand over this ministry to them. He's about to leave, and he knows it, so he's preparing them. And he says, the world will hate you for following me. Now, when he says the world, he's not talking about earth. He's not talking about this blue marble that's like floating around in space. He's talking about the world system, the culture of the world, the, the people of the world, the governments, and, and how everything operates as a culture when he talks about the world. And, and something else that we read in the Bible is that Satan is the god of this world. That Satan is the one who's holding all of the puppet strings. He's the one who's making things happen. He's behind the scenes. And if Satan is the one behind this world, then it makes sense that the world would be opposed to God. It would make sense that it's going in an opposite direction from what God wants to do. And so he says that the world will hate you for following me. Why? Why, why would the world hate us for following Jesus? He answers it right there in verse 19. He says, if you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. You don't belong. You don't fit. He's talking to his disciples, and, and he says, you guys, you, you're not going to match the environment. You're not going to fit in. You don't belong here anymore. You're used to, and I've chosen you out of it. It's kind of like the, uh, trying to put a square peg in a round hole. Do you guys remember that, that wooden toy that we would give to, to toddlers with like the triangle and the star? And, and you could never put one shape in any hole except for the right one. And it's like he's saying, you guys are square peg. You guys are squares. <laughs> Jesus says you guys are squares and, and you're, try you're never going to fit in the round hole. You're never going to make it trying to fit. They're going to hate you. And maybe you say, um, okay, I think that would make sense back then. I think I know the rest of the story. And yeah, it seems like they, they really were hated, but this is America, right? This is, we're a Christian nation. I do feel like I fit in. I feel like we fit okay. There's churches on every corner. What do you mean we're not going to fit? Maybe you read that and you're like, this feels so foreign to me. Let's keep going because I think that one reason why 
the disciples were never going to fit is because anything different is a threat, right? Like, if you've ever seen, like, a dystopian movie or read a dystopian novel, like, they're all built around this idea that somebody in charge noticed everybody's different, and I don't like it, and so they ruin the world because of it, right? They change everything. In fact, it's like a middle school lunchroom. If anything's different, you're in trouble. Like if, you wore the weird, if you're the goofy kid that wore the wrong trend, then you don't get to sit at our table. And I think that there's this contrast between what we saw in the disciples and what we see in our lives. Like they, they were experiencing all kinds of horrible things, right? And I just don't experience that. But see, Jesus' followers have always stood out all throughout history. When it started, it was, even, it was kind of part of a Jewish faith, right? And even among the Jews, Christians stood out. They didn't fit because we believe that a relationship with God is based on repentance and not based on lineage and your family. Like, you're not good just because of who you are. You need to repent and get right with God. So they didn't fit. They didn't fit with the Romans either, Right? Because Christians believe that we have an allegiance to one God over everything else. And everybody in Rome needed to worship Caesar and their pantheon of God, so they didn't fit. And Christians have traditionally never fit in Muslim countries because we believe in grace instead of effort. And we haven't usually fit in Eastern religious countries because we believe in this exclusive, like there is one God, there's one heaven, and there's one way to get there. And then we, we just don't fit in, a, in an environment where there's so many options and it's like a buffet. And even in America today, even in a, a Christian society, we really don't fit, do we? Right? Because isn't America today, isn't our culture today constantly saying that you are the main character of your own story? That's not what I read about in the Bible. I, I am not my own main character. I am a character in God's story of redemption. It's not about me, but America sure says it's about me. Right? And then I dare you to walk onto a college campus and go around telling everybody that there's one way to God. We don't fit in our culture right now. And so let me ask you, if you're here and you say, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm a, I'm a Christian, are you so camouflaged that the world doesn't have a problem with your faith? Are you so good at blending in in these different situations that nobody ever has a problem with it? Because he says you're not going to fit. And yet, when I look at my life, I feel like I fit pretty much everywhere. Right? Jesus said the world will hate you, but does it love you instead? But Jason, wait, wait. I, I thought that we were supposed to be friends with everyone. Like we have, to, we have to be nice and kind to everybody and attract them to Jesus. Don't we want everybody to like us? If that's where your heart went, if that's where your, the argument in your head went, we're, we're missing each other because I'm not talking about being kind to people in Jesus' name. I'm asking, do you look like everyone else in the culture around you? Or not. Right? Because one of these guys who was listening to Jesus this night, he went on to write a letter. Peter wrote 1 Peter, and in it he says this 1 Peter 1, verse 14. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy. Holy means different, set apart, unique, special, better. 
Just as he who called you is holy, be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I'm holy. Do we look like everyone else in the culture or are we set apart and unique for his glory? Right? Because I can, I can look through the New Testament and find all kinds of things that as a Christian I should be doing. Like uh, in Colossians chapter 3, it says that no filthy language should come out of my mouth. But it does, right? Like maybe not here, maybe not at church, but you get me in just the right setting where I feel safe around the right people and you'd be surprised the words that come out of my mouth. Right? It says in Matthew chapter 6 that we can't serve God and money, but man, we try, don't we? Right? We go to church on the weekends, but then we grind all week long. We're working overtime. We're padding our 401k. We need this to grow. But yeah, I'm a Christian too, over here. Hebrews 13 says that we should keep the marriage bed pure. And in a room this size, I wonder how many of us have failed at that one too. Right? 1 Peter chapter 2 says we should submit to every human authority. Now, while I spend time wrestling with what that means and what are the boundaries of that, does it really mean every or are there exceptions? And I spin out on that and I just never actually do it, right? Even I'm told to pray for my leaders. I don't do that either, right? And, and I see stuff about our lifestyle, about how we give, about our humility, about the grace that we give away to other people. Christians are supposed to look different, than the world around us. And Jesus is saying that since you're going to be different, the world's going to hate you. I think this should be a litmus test for us. Now, I realize hate looks different now and here than it might in other places, right? It might not be death and, and, and being arrested. It, it might be something a lot smaller, a lot softer, a lot slower. It might mean being canceled in culture. But does anybody ever have a problem with my faith because of how I'm living it out? Now, that's the first reason that the world might hate you, because you don't belong. The second reason is that I think we, we represent Jesus and his message. Let's keep going. Verse 20. It says, Remember what I told you? A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And if they obeyed my teaching... They'll obey yours. They will treat you this way because of my name. They hated Jesus, right? Like you guys know that they, they hated him. They nailed him to a cross. He died alone between thieves. Well, if they hated Jesus, they're bound to hate Jesus' people, right? Let's keep going. Verse 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. And then he says it again down in verse 24, but he's talking about miracles. He said, I, I came and I did these amazing things in front of them, things that nobody else could do. I'm clearly sent from God. And they still hated him. He's healing people and they hated him. So why? Why? Why did they hate Jesus? Because what was so offensive about a guy who goes around feeding entire towns? Right, like he fed 5,000 men and their families. You think word would have gotten around, like, hey, Jesus, this is pretty cool. He made lunch, right? He's healing people's brothers and their wife and their aunt and their grandpa. 
You'd think people would love Jesus for that. And he goes around telling his disciples, you guys need to be better at loving one another. What an encouraging message. Like, how is it that that guy who's feeding people and healing people and he's telling everybody to love each other better, how is he hated? Because I think at the root of, of everything, the root of his message was that he told them that they were not okay. And especially the religious leaders. So he butted heads with the religious leaders so much. Like they loved the pious. And he loved the wretched. They loved the rich. And he loved the poor. And they said, we're so proud to be Israelites. And he said, I want to go after the Gentiles too. All the things that they held so dearly were wrong. They thought that they were good. And he showed them that they were not good. See, the gospel begins with the truth that you are not good. You're not good enough. You're not okay on your own. And that is offensive. That is what got the hatred out of people for Jesus. And compare that then to our culture that is screaming that you are enough. You're good enough. You need to live your best life. Be the best you. Take control of your destiny. And they even... I see that creeping into the church, too. I see that idea that you are enough the way that you are working its way into Christian language. And I think part of the problem is that we've misunderstood this idea of the Imago Dei, the image of God. You were created in the image of God. You bear some of his qualities and his characteristics, and because of that, you have inherent value. You are valuable, but the Imago Dei in us is broken. It's a poor representation of God. You have value because it's a representation of him, but it's broken, and you can't do anything about it on your own. You're not good enough to fix yourself. And that is offensive. And so if I could boil down Jesus' message, I think it might be something like this. Salvation is free, but it will cost you everything. Salvation is free, but it will cost you everything. And I see over and over Jesus teaching both sides of this. We get to John 3.16, and he says, all you have to do is believe. It's free to you. It's paid for. Put your faith in Jesus, and it is taken care of. But then we see him talking to the rich young ruler, and he says, I need you to give up everything. Go sell all your possessions, give it away to the poor, abandon your lifestyle, and follow me. I don't know where I'm going next, but you can come. It's free, but it'll cost you everything. And both parts of this message are offensive. See, the free part is actually offensive if you think about it. Why is it free? It's free because you were never going to earn it. You were never going to be good enough, do enough, try hard enough, be clean enough to get there. So Jesus went and paid for it for you. It's free to you. Well, that's offensive. I like to earn my own way, right? I like to get a promotion. I want to hear an attaboy. And my guess is that you do too, because that's the way that we're wired. And so the free part's offensive, and the cost me everything part, that's offensive. You mean 
I actually have to get off of the throne of my own life and let Jesus sit on it? You mean when I say Lord, it's not just some term for him in a worship song. You mean it's actually like he has control and I don't? He has authority over me? I don't have any autonomy? Well, that's offensive. I like to be in control of me. That's my future. That's my destiny. Those are my kids. This is my career. It's mine. We want to control that. So Jesus, you're saying that I'm not good enough and I never will be and that I have to give up control of my own life? That's what got him hated. And I wish that somebody would have explained this to me earlier in life because I spent years living a convenient Christianity. Right, I remember as a, as a young man, probably 20, um, I would go and I would play pool at Old Chicago with a group of guys. And we probably, we probably played several times a week, enough that the bartender knew our names and we were not old enough to drink. Right? Like we were there a lot. And we would go, we'd go there, that's where we would start, but then we would end up at parties, we would do all kinds of things. Right? And you can imagine what a group of guys that starts their evening at a bar does. And then I bumped into some of them at church, the church that I'd been going to for years. And in the hallway of the church, they said, you're a Christian? Oh, and you don't want to hear that, right? What a, what a horrible moment. What a wake-up call that I'm like, of course I'm a Christian. They would not have known that based on how we were acting three days earlier, Right? And see, here's the problem. I was living a convenient Christianity. When it was convenient for me, I was a Christian. I'd go to church, and in the right circles, I could say all the right things, and I knew some Bible verses. I'd even pray if you asked me to pray. But when it wasn't convenient, nah, I got other things to do. And here's the problem. Convenient Christianity is not biblical Christianity. Convenient Christianity just isn't biblical. See, biblical Christianity looks like what we're finding out in this passage. It looks like people who are unique in the world, not camouflaged, who live lives submitted to the authority and the control of Jesus. Convenient Christianity looks like people who blend in with the world. They maintain control of their own life, and then they do just enough religious activity to check the emotional box and say, I'm still a Christian. Then they get away with, feeling like they're doing everything right without actually doing everything right. All the reward, none of the risk. And see, I think we've been so worried about offending people. The American church has been so worried about offending people with the gospel that we've created a version of Christianity where nobody has to give up anything. A watered-down gospel light. And so let's take a minute and let's compare biblical Christianity and convenient Christianity. The biblical Christianity, the, the Christianity that I see in the disciples in the book of Acts is all in, all the time. It doesn't matter if they were being dragged in chains into prison or if they were sitting down to a meal together. They were all about Jesus, all the time, 100%. Convenient Christianity only does it when it's convenient. I'm, I'm only a Jesus person when I'm around Jesus people. You know, I've got, a, I've got a Bible on my coffee table, and if you came over, you might notice, or that, that artwork that I've got on the wall with the prayer on it, right? You might, you might but, but otherwise, you wouldn't really know, right? Biblical Christianity is uncomfortable. 
Like God calls you to do some uncomfortable things. Pray for your enemies, like for their good, (laughs) right? Pray for your enemies' good. What about forgiving people more times than you think you should have to? What about when God puts somebody on your heart and, he, and you are the gospel connection for them? You're supposed to go tell them about Jesus. That's uncomfortable. I don't want to go over I don't want to do that and be vulnerable. Biblical Christianity is uncomfortable. Convenient Christianity just stiff arms all that. My faith ends at where I'm comfortable. Right? I, I'm going to reserve the right to be mad. I'm never actually interested in my enemies doing any better in life. God forbid I would get to the actual gospel with people. I'll just love people really well and I'll plant seeds and then they'll get it. Because that's convenient, right? Biblical Christianity is offensive when necessary. And I don't mean offensive for the sake of being offensive. Like you all know jerks for Jesus, right? Like those people that just, they're just trying to offend, like they get on the internet and they're just trying to offend people and they're waving a Christian flag while they're doing it. It's not what I mean. But when it's necessary, Christianity is meant to be a little offensive. It's not supposed to fit in culture. And, and at the root of that is the gospel. If we never get to people and we never actually tell them, I think that your sin is taking you to hell, do you know the Jesus that I know? Because you might not get it if I don't say these things. That might be offensive, and that's worth it. Biblical Christianity. Convenient Christianity avoids offense at all times. We just never talk about hard things. There are some hot-button issues in our culture that we kind of know we shouldn't tread on, and we just love people, and we never actually get to the gospel in people's lives. Biblical Christianity calls people to submission, Convenient Christianity allows people to stay in control. We never hold each other accountable. Biblical Christianity is hated, and convenient Christianity is accepted. So with that in mind, let's keep going with what Jesus said in John. We're going to be in verse 26. He says, When the Advocate comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me, and you must also testify, for you've been with me from the beginning. And he says, look, when I leave, the Holy Spirit's going to come, and you guys are going to be like partners, and you're going to have a job, and your job is to go out and to testify about me, to represent me in this world, to be my ambassadors to a world that's going to hate you. We have a job to do. And our job is to get to the people around us with the gospel because their soul matters. Right? And so Jesus leaves us with a job and and he says, look, I know it's going to be hard. I know that you're not going to fit in if you do this. I know that people are going to hate you for it. That's why I'm telling you all of this ahead of time so that you'll be prepared. And then he goes on in John 16, 1, all this I have told you so that you will not fall away. So I think Jesus was preparing his disciples for hard times on mission so that they wouldn't fall away because he knows this fear of rejection that's in us, this need to belong, this fear of being hated will cause us to compromise. It'll cause us to fall away. 
It'll cause us to second-guess this. Should I, do I actually really need to talk about Jesus at work? Do my family really need to hear about my faith? Right? It causes us to, to fall back, to shrink back, because nobody likes being hated. And the temptation is to run in the opposite direction, to get to the point where we're not hated. And so Jesus knows what's coming for his disciples and for us. And so he confronts the fear outright, and he says, you're going to be hated. Be prepared. Be ready ahead of time for that. And that idea of falling away actually reminds me of another passage in Hebrews chapter 10. And it's actually really sobering to read as I look at my own life. Hebrews 10.36 goes like this. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For, just, for in just a little while, he who is coming will come and he will not delay. And, but my righteous one will live by faith and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we don't belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. What a sobering thought as I think about me. Because I have a tendency to shrink back. I have a tendency to think, I will tell them about it next time, every time. I have a tendency to never quite call people out that need to be reminded that they're living for Jesus because it makes me uncomfortable. And so I will shrink back. And he says, I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back and cowers from that fear. And listen, I don't, I don't think that this is God up in heaven with like a report card. And he's like, you, you got an F again, Jimmy. Like, I'm so disappointed in you. How, when are you going to get this right? And he's also not up there going, it's okay, get up, you're going to get another chance. I don't think that that's his attitude at all. Why would he have uh, this, this feeling where he doesn't have any pleasure in us whenever we're doing that? Because you and I are the avenue of his grace and redemption to the world around us. And when we don't do it, when we shrink back, it breaks his heart. The God that wants us to get to the people is watching us afraid of the people and never getting out there, right? What a sobering thought. Now, I want to go back. We're going to finish in John. Jesus continues, John 16, 2. Again, talking to his disciples, they will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. And man, if that doesn't sound familiar, right? Isn't it hard that when you're trying your best to live a convicted, holy life, it's Jesus' people sometimes that give you the hardest time for it, right? How frustrating. The disciples went through that too. He says they're going to try to kill you. Verse 3, they will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I've told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. They're going to try to kill you. And immediately, the disciples were put in an environment where they would have to confront this fear. Immediately, in the Garden of Gethsemane, like hours later, right? People come to arrest Jesus and everybody freaks out. Everybody runs away. At the trial, in the courtyard, 
around a, a fire. Peter has an opportunity to confront this fear, and a little girl says, aren't you with Jesus? And he's too afraid of what the crowd's going to think. And he shrinks back. And then Jesus, after he comes out of the grave, he restores Peter, and he restores the disciples, and then the Holy Spirit comes, and then the game is on. They're going to try to kill them, and immediately they're in an environment where people are trying to kill them. And so I imagine this hate that, that we experience as Christians on a scale, right? And on this end of the scale, you've got what the disciples went through. Like some of them, most of them, were murdered for Jesus. They were killed for their faith. And right under that, they were, they were beaten for Jesus, and they were arrested. They were disowned and families were broken up and, and they no longer could, could serve or, or operate a business in their hometown because of Jesus. And all the way at the other end of the scale is my life, where I might get a funny look if I try to pray with my family in Wendy's. Or uh, a high schooler might have, be a little bit less popular if everybody knows that they're a Christian. Or you don't get invited out to lunch at work anymore because you know that they're going to drink and tell dirty jokes and you're just, they're a little uncomfortable around you. And so you just kind of feel left out at the office. Like This is the end that we pretty much live in and we see how much they were hated over there. And what happens is I think because the threat isn't as big over here, we don't feel like it's a very big deal, so we never do anything about it. And here's the problem, at either end of this scale, the threat might be larger or smaller, but if we cower to the fear and we don't press through it, we don't get to people because of Jesus either way, right? And so a lot of us say, I would totally give my life for Jesus. I would live at this end. But we have a really hard time living at this end. See, Christianity is not supposed to be comfortable or convenient, and throughout history, and, and even around the world today, people live at this end of the scale. And here's the problem in America. I think that we have had so little persecution that we've lost the essence of what it is to, to do hard things for Jesus, right? I think we've had so little persecution that we've never had to exercise the muscle that gives us strength over the fear. And so it's atrophied to the point that we will compromise on everything. It seems backwards, but without this extreme persecution, I think we're actually more likely to fall away because we've never had to use the muscle. We've never had to address the fear of what other people might think. They might hate us. And that is not what God wants for us. That's not his heart for you, that you would slowly fall away because of other people's opinions. He wants you to stay connected to him. That's why this is all set in the same conversation with the vine and the branches. But it begins with admitting the impact that this fear has had on you and then partnering with him moving forward. So what do we do? What do we do if we're here and we realize, I have lived a convenient Christianity? I think the first thing that we have to understand is the only way we're going to do this is by living this life with the Holy Spirit. Did you catch that in, in what Jesus said? The Holy Spirit's going to come and he's going to testify and you're gonna, it's going to be a partnership. It's a, it's a, a team effort. And what I see is that is exactly what happened in the disciples' lives. 
See, being filled with the Spirit is what allowed Peter and John to go stand before the exact same Sanhedrin that arrested and killed Jesus and say, you guys are the problem. You need saved as much as we do. Bold gospel in the face of fear because they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And I see it in Stephen too. Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit and while he was being stoned to death, he was watching rocks fly at him and he was dying. Filled with the Spirit, he looked up, he saw heaven opened. And he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. In the face of fear, the Spirit causes that fear to dissolve. And I think that we need to do a better job of actually partnering with the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk more about that next week in John 16. I think another thing that we need to do is that when we recognize that we have this fear of what other people think, we need to take it to God. And that sounds so trite and churchy, Right? I know it does. Right? Oh, take it to God. Yeah, that sounds great. We talk about doing that. We never talk about why. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7 says, Cast all your anxiety on him, for he cares for you. It sounds a lot like Psalm 55. Cast all your cares on the Lord, and he will sustain you. We don't just give God our, our fears and our anxieties because that's what religious people do. We do it because we trust that God actually loves me and actually cares and will help. And it might look like a prayer that says, God, I have such a hard time being sold out for you at work. Like, I, I don't, I don't want to be hated. And I'm about to start a new work week. And he goes, and I would love to help and walk with you in that. Maybe it's a prayer that says, I, I'm afraid to pray for my neighbor, God. I think that you could solve this problem, but I'm worried about what he thinks. What if we started by actually just being honest with God and said, I'm afraid, right? I'm, I'm afraid that I can't go out with my friends this Friday and stay sober. I don't know if I can do it. Would you help, right? What if that's where the conversation started? Now, I want to end with, with a question that I would like for all of us to ask. Am I only a Christian when it's convenient? Where am I compromising? If I look at my life, where am I compromising in order to blend in? Is it in my family? Is it at work? Is it at school? How is it or where is it that my lifestyle looks just like the world around me? Can anybody see a difference? Are there areas of my life where I'm doing worse at this and I could work on it? Another question, does anyone have a problem with my faith? Jesus said the world is going to have a problem with your faith. Is that true? Does anybody have a problem ever with my faith? And see, I think even this week, what we could do is we could ask God to point out the moments where I'm choosing convenience and camouflage over him. Where am I more worried about what people think than worried about their soul? And asking God to point that out to us and then praying for courage to live out our lives in a way that might get unwanted attention for his glory. Amen? Let me pray for you guys real quick. Heavenly Father, thank you for a chance to represent you in a world that desperately needs you. But I think we've been so worried about what they think of us that we haven't been very good ambassadors. So would you help? We acknowledge this fear that has a hold of us because we haven't exercised this muscle. 
Would you help? Would you give us courage? Would you show us where we're shrinking back? And help us be the best representative of the genuine, full-throated gospel that we can be. In Jesus' name, amen.